Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to another edition of How to Bay Area, the podcast that tells you how to get stuff done right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Today on the program, we consider how to reopen the Bay Area safely after months on COVID lockdown. We're going to discuss how the prep work for that reopening is going right now. You know, everything from boosting our testing and tracing capacity to pushing down the infection rate as far as we possibly can. And then we will consider why it is that health officials still believe that work is not yet done. The truth is that the conditions on the ground have not changed. We have a population that is susceptible to COVID-19 and we don't have a vaccine. Now, even as health officials like Santa Clara County Health Officer Dr. Sarah Cody, who we just heard from there, are calling for a slow and steady reopening, others are growing restless. Perhaps the most high profile among them now would be Sonoma County Sheriff Mark Essick, who in late May, just a few days before we taped this podcast, shocked many of his fellow county officials with a surprise announcement. Sonoma County Sheriff's Office will no longer enforce the public health orders issued by the County of Sonoma. Explaining the action has excited the county's relatively low case count. It's time to reevaluate. It's time to reevaluate the restrictions on people's personal freedoms and liberties. It's time to reevaluate business. And it's time to stop criminalizing behavior that would otherwise not be criminal. All right, well, he's ready to move faster from the sounds of it, but health officials, they're still warning that going too fast could have disastrous consequences. So what is the right pace for reopening? Well, obviously that is a hugely important question, but also a hugely complicated one. We're dealing with questions of science, of medicine, economics, human nature. There are, simply put, a lot of moving parts here. So we are going to spend this entire program examining each and every one of those parts, one by one, with the goal that by the end of the show, whether you agree with the lockdown or not, you'll at least understand why health officials are making the decisions that they're making right now. The show format is going to be pretty simple today, just one long interview. The guest for that interview is Dr. Marm Kilpatrick. He's an infectious disease researcher with UC Santa Cruz, who I have found to be extremely helpful during this pandemic, as I myself have struggled to wrap my puny reporter brain around all this science and technical medical jargon. So we are lucky to have him for this conversation, too. Starting off that conversation, Dr. Kilpatrick began by reminding us why we made the decision to enter this lockdown in the first place. Overall goals are that uh, we had a state before we had this lockdown where the number of cases were increasing exponentially. And as uh, I've said in a previous conversation with you, uh, the number of cases were increasing about two and a half cases for each infected case over a short period of time, like just five or seven days. And so with that kind of runaway transmission, we were really not going to be able to cope with the amount of cases and illnesses and hospitalizations and even deaths that were likely to occur. And so that's why a lockdown took place. 
And so now the big goal that we just did this lockdown was to say, okay, we prevented a really terrible uh, event from occurring. We still obviously had substantial numbers of illnesses and some deaths in California, but far less than we would have had we not taken those measures. We would have had situations like um, people saw in New York and other places like that in the world. So the goal now is really to prevent outcomes like that from occurring. Um, and, and so we're going to try to do what we can to, to prevent that uh, in the long term for as long as we need to until there are either effective drugs or a vaccine in place. All right. Yeah, that's a very helpful perspective in just understanding the context for all of these uh, different topics that we're going to be broaching today. The first thing that I want to get to, just so that any any of our listeners that maybe weren't following the blow by blow of this over the last uh, month or so, is what are the criteria that the state and the counties are using to decide when it is safe to reopen? And I, there's a number of different criteria, and I think it's worth very briefly uh, ticking them off one by one just to make sure that we at least have the basic basics of each one. And uh, the first one would be we're trying to, in some way, figure out whether or not the virus is still spreading, whether or not we're getting new cases. This one is a pretty challenging thing to measure because we know that our when we go out and we test people, we are probably undercounting the actual number of uh, new cases out there because we can't test everybody just yet. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Kil Kilpatrick, we're using some fairly fancy metrics for this one. Yeah, so the first goal is really to make sure that the number of cases are flat or decreasing. Um, and as you mentioned, what we really want to know is whether the number of infections are actually increasing or, or decreasing or flat. Um, and so the number of cases that we get, which are, of course, people that test positive for the virus, um, that's just an indicator or an index of that. And of course, the number of confirmed cases can be uh, can change quite a bit if we increase our testing capacity or change our criteria for who we are testing. And so um, uh, for a county or any public agency to use data on the number of cases, we really have to be careful in taking account um, how many tests we're actually doing to correctly interpret that data in terms of trends in cases. All right. So uh, something that we're trying to track right there. But as you said, there's different ways to do it. So we'll just leave that one for now. The other metric that people are watching very closely would be the hospital capacity. And so that is a factor of both how many more people are sick enough to go into hospital and also how much actual beds and rooms that we are adding to uh, our hospital system to take in those people. Yeah, so the hospital um, criteria, are, I think, are a little bit more helpful or a little bit easier to really follow and depend on than some of the case criteria. And that is because while you can increase or decrease your testing criteria or your testing capacity relatively quickly, um, your hospital capacity and your number of people that you admit to your hospitals are generally more stable than that. Um, and so the goal here is to say, are the number of people that are in hospitals due to COVID-19, are those increasing or decreasing or flat? And of course, we'd like them to be decreasing. And in addition to that, in order to prevent a surge in the number of, say, illnesses due to COVID-19 that, that extend past the capacity of hospitals, if we have a certain amount of spare capacity, that makes us feel a little bit more secure. So uh, that's why the criteria is set substantially below the kind of 100% capacity limits. All right. Just to tick off a couple of more criteria, the next one would be testing. I think most people will be familiar with this one at this point. We have step, managed to step up testing substantially in California and in the Bay Area, but still not quite where we want to be. Yeah. So testing ends up being really important. And that's because, of course, we can't really identify who's infected without a, a good, accurate test and an ability to test a substantial fraction of people. And in addition to that, um, because there's a substantial fraction of the population that um, can become sick, excuse me, can become infected and actually be infectious before they have any symptoms, then using testing to identify these asymptomatic people um, and limit their transmission is quite important as well. So having capacity not just to test the people that come to the hospital with symptoms, but also to test wider ranges of the population to find people um, uh, and to monitor overall transmission, especially in certain high-risk groups, is quite important. Finally, let me say that one of the key challenges is to try to maintain uh, certain sex segments of the population uh, free of the virus and groups that are most important, of course, are, are um, healthcare providers, people providing care for elderly people. And so a number of uh, counties and organizations are trying to do uh, frequent testing of all people that are at these uh, healthcare facilities like hospitals uh, and doctor's offices, things like that, as well as places where el elderly people are being cared for to try to really prevent the virus from coming into these organizations and leading to spread and really rapid uh, severe illness as well as deaths. 
Right. So that's going to be really key in the coming weeks. It's not just a matter of how many tests you have. It's also a matter of where are those tests being administered and how many people have access to them. And we have already seen examples in some cities. San Jose, I know in particular, has more testing capacity than they're using uh, because it sounds like they're not able to reach some of the communities that they would like to at this point. The next indicator that we are looking at is tracing. So tracing is this idea that once somebody has tested positive, we would like to look at all the people that they have come into contact with. So that's why they call it contact tracing, because those people would be at higher risk of coronavirus infection. Yeah. So contact tracing is a really key component of limiting transmission, because often if a person is infected and they come forth to a doctor, we test them, we find they're positive. That means if they're already have some illness, there's a good chance they've actually been infectious for several days and they may have passed on the virus to someone else. And the way for us to try to uh, find who they might have already infected, who could be themselves passing on the virus, is to trace those contacts. But of course, that takes time to find all the people that a person that's infected today and sick today might have infected in the past week. And therefore, we need actually a substantial staff of people to uh, find all those contacts, contact all those contacts, reach them and try to uh, see if we can convince them to basically safely isolate themselves to lead to less subsequent transmission. Mm. All right. So we're going to be returning to that topic in just a second. Uh, Last major one that I want to broach with you, and maybe you can bring in others that come to mind that uh, I'm not as familiar with. But the last major one I want to bring up is uh, PPE, personal protective equipment. We're talking about masks. We're talking about gowns, the stuff that doctors and nurses need on hand to be able to stay safe themselves from the virus. And we have been really struggling to get enough of this out to uh, our doctors and nurses and hospitals. I think that the goal in the Bay Area is to have all jurisdictions have a 30-day supply of this gear. Is that more or less right? That sounds right to me. And I think the the thing that's so amazing about this is that we're not talking about, you know, relatively high-tech equipment here. We're really talking about basic, basic protection for our doctors and nurses and other first care, uh, excuse me, first responders. And so it, I think it is does make a lot of sense to make sure we have enough equipment for these people to do their job safely. Um, and that does mean having more than, you know, just a week's supply or things like that. Because if there are surges in cases and we have to deploy people or put them in more dangerous circumstances, we need to be basically provide protection for them. All right. So any other things that you would add to the list that are gating criteria either for the counties or the states that you think folks should be aware of? Sure. Let me just add one more piece to the testing part. Um, There's a growing awareness and it's actually, unfortunately, a number of uh, good examples of where um, relatively large groups of people are moving around the country for um, seasonal jobs. And one of the important ones that's happening now is um, harvesting in the farm uh, sector. And so there's often uh, substantial groups of people that basically will come to farms and harvest, say, a a fruit crop or a crop that's basically uh, all ready for market at the same time. And what often happens is that those groups of people come together and often are housed in relatively uh, crowded dormitories and then have to work relatively close together in the fields as well. And that's creating a really challenging and high-risk situation for transmission. And so another way that testing is going to be used and is going to be required quite a bit of testing capacity is to uh, test individuals in these um, groups of uh, migrant farm workers and try to really limit transmission. And in addition to that, um, to be able to provide places for people that do test positive and are infected to safely isolate themselves and not uh, lead to subsequent transmission. So the last piece that hasn't really been discussed on this criteria here, but which I would actually put up as an extremely uh, important criteria, would be to have enough safe space for people that test positive and their contacts to uh, go and and safely isolate themselves, as well as the services they would need while they're isolating themselves, which we normally require a 14-day isolation. So someone needs to have food for those 14 days, any other things they might need, like medications or um, other simple toiletries and things like that. So that's a a key thing that is going to be required to make us able to safely uh, have a little bit more commerce and not lead to spikes in transmission. Perfect. Uh, Yeah, definitely. That is a a very good thing to flag. Now, that gives a sense of what the goals are at this point. For the rest of the program, I want to focus instead on what are the holdups? What are the things that are making authorities think twice before they actually do lift those lockdown orders? And when we look at the list of things that we just discussed a moment ago, some of those are looking pretty good. Uh, We have had some less fortunate news in the last week in terms of case counts, but 
I guess we can discuss that in a second, how how we should interpret those numbers. But in terms of hospital capacity, Bay Area has been looking good, reasonably good for a while. The really difficult things that we've had to stand up are testing, tracing, uh, PPE, many jurisdictions still struggling with that. Let's start with this question of testing. Now, the metric that I'm looking at for the counties is we have a goal of 200 tests per 100,000 people per day. For a layman such as myself, those numbers feel somewhat like they've been picked out of the air. I'm wondering if you can offer any insight, even if we're not focusing specifically on the county numbers, just whatever whatever targets you're aware of that are out there. How are these numbers set? Why that specific number as opposed to something else? Sure. So I think as you correctly pointed out, that number uh, seems like a little bit arbitrary and it is a little bit arbitrary, but not completely arbitrary. So the goal here is to basically be able to have enough tests to be able to test a significant fraction of the population in a short amount of time for the reasons we laid out previously. So for example, if there was say a group of 5,000 migrant farm workers that were going to come into a county to help harvest, uh, you know, to pick uh, the food that we all eat, we would want to try to keep them safe. And if we only had enough tests to, let's say, test 5% of them every month, that's, that's going to be inadequate to really determine if there's much infection happening in that population. Whereas if we could screen, say, that population or a fraction of that population on a more frequent interval, then we'd be much more likely to catch infection if it's occurring there. So we basically do need to have substantial capacity to be able to find transmission at a even moderately low level so that we can stop things before they really get out of control. Mm. Okay, so in most counties at this point, there is a delta between that number. Most counties are at best maybe at about a quarter of where they want to be in terms of the number of tests that are being administered each day. So I guess maybe let's start with if we were at that level, what would that mean in terms of our ability to track the spread of this virus? If if, if we really did hit that goal in the counties of the Bay Area, does that mean that we are able to detect this virus wherever it's popping up? Does it does it give us the eye of Zoran on this virus? What what exactly what capability does that give us? Sure. So the the goals for the capacity for testing really allow two things. They first allow enough capacity to really test anyone that comes into any health healthcare facility anywhere to be tested in a short amount of time. Um, and, and get an answer in a relatively short amount of time as well. So I should have also brought that up previously, is that a key criteria that's not as transparent here, but is also very important, is how fast we get the results from a test back to the healthcare provider that, that suggested that test. So if we can get turnaround times for test results somewhere on the order of 24 hours, uh, that's much, much more effective than if it takes three or four days. By that time, we really uh, transmission may have occurred from that person and their contacts. So we need fast turnaround time. Um, but let's uh, return to your question, which was, uh, what does it really buy us if we get to those targets? And the answer is we can get two things. One is we can get sufficient tests to identify each person as infected or not when they first come to the doctor, when they have symptoms. In addition to that, we can then do some additional testing of people that are not necessarily having symptoms at all or having relatively mild symptoms um, and identify the fraction of those people that are also infected and try to find the people that are infected and get them to safely isolate um, themselves. And what that might require are much, much higher numbers than you might otherwise think. So for example, um, in the county where I live, um, there are uh, uh, a number of people living in skilled nursing facilities, um, and I think they house approximately 800 people in Santa Cruz County. And so uh, in order to keep those people safe, we might want to screen those people um, relatively frequently, like uh, the, the targets that I've been hearing recently are to screen everyone in that nursing facility um, about once per month. So that means screening about a quarter of the population every week or so. And that's just one segment of the population we'd want to keep our eyes on. We also might want to keep our eyes on all of the doctors and nurses in a given county, all the people doing kind of the first responder type positions. We might also want to keep our eyes on other segments of the population that might be at high risk. So we talked about migrant farm workers as one possibility. I think there are other essential businesses and workers that have also been identified to be at risk. That could be things like grocery store um, cashiers. It could be people working in pharmacies, things like that. So if we have sufficient testing capacity, we have the chance to go identify these people that are at relatively high risk of infection and maybe also at high risk of disease and try to find the virus um, before it really spreads throughout those communities. Motivating this question, there are a lot of people out there that are very eager to get back to work. They, they're feeling a lot of economic hardship right now and they 
are are willing to take a little bit of added transmission risk in order to get their household back in order and in order to you know get 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 back to work get their livelihood up and running once again so i i guess what i'm what i'm trying to get as concrete an idea of as i possibly can is what does that delta in terms of where the testing is now and where the testing would get to if we hit our targets what does that delta bias in terms of added security and added capacity to trace this virus? And why should we be so concerned about that delta that it is worth continuing this lockdown because we don't have that capacity? So that's a fair question, and I'm going to explain it in a way that's going to take a tiny bit of uh, careful thinking. So the challenge here is twofold. So first, as we open more and more businesses, we know that's going to lead to more and more contacts among people and more transmission. And the overall large goal, right, is to stop kind of large rampant transmission from occurring, leading to levels that are so high that we get widespread severe disease, death, and really enormous impacts. So as we open up some businesses, we're going to get closer and closer to where each case infects on average more than one case. And so that's going to be the case where we start to have exponential growth in cases again. And we obviously don't want to go there. In addition to that, there's a phenomenon that's now been... um, relatively widely uh, acknowledged by the scientists and also I think a bit more by lay people as well, which is that even though there's an average number of cases per case, so kind of an average spreading rate that you hear or see, there's an enormous amount of variability in that. And what we frequently see with COVID-19, which may surprise some of your listeners, is that a huge fraction of all people that are infected actually don't go on to infect anyone, which is great, but there's a small fraction of cases that go on to infect not just one person, but often many people. And the challenge is, is that if we can't find uh, kind of transmission occurring in some populations until someone is, is sick, we often first find it when there's already been a large spreading event. And then sometimes it's quite difficult to contain that spreading event because, of course, uh, it can cascade through many different households and many different uh, social circles and communities. And at that point, it can be quite difficult to bring things back under control. So the real goal here is to not get to a place where things are out of control Um, And doing so really requires us to stay ahead of the game and not be kind of caught on our feet when we first find, say, a dozen or a couple dozen people show up to the hospital one day and we go to investigate and we realize there's actually hundreds of cases occurring that we didn't know about. So what the testing capacity buys us is the ability to stay one step ahead of the virus and try to limit these um, large spreading events that occur um, and and therefore limit the, the virus from getting out of control. And so it's thought that, for example, San Francisco Chronicle reports that Alameda County has uh, 60 tests per day per 100,000. So if you could only do 60, uh, 60 tests per 100,000 population each day, that would not be enough to meet all those various requirements, you know, in hospital and nursing homes, et, et, et cetera? Yeah, you simply are simply can't get back to populations that you care about frequently enough to monitor infection. And that means that if you're going to wait to find infection by a person showing up at a hospital with severe illness, there's quite frequently several cases that that person has already led to infection. Um, And then, of course, it's too late to go find and stop that transmission from occurring. And worse, of course, is if you have a person, let's say, that comes to the hospital very sick, and it turns out they've actually already unfortunately infected a substantial number of people, and then you have to chase those cases down and all the cases that arose from those cases. And that's precisely the kind of stuff we're trying to stop by um, kind of increased testing, increased testing capacity, and chases, chasing cases more actively. All righty. Uh, last point that we're going to make on testing before we move on. We've uh, been dwelling on this topic for a long time and we have a lot more to get to. But people obviously, in addition to knowing what it's good for, they also want to have some expectation that they will get the improvements that we're all waiting on. So what is the timeline that you're seeing in terms of when we can expect to see our testing goals hit? What is what is the holdup and how long is it going to take to overcome those holdups? So an unfortunate answer to that question from my perspective is that there's several um, and we have to kind of keep jumping over each one of the hurdles. So early on, there really wasn't very good testing in terms of even just kind of uh, big equipment to make to do the tests. And then once some of those uh, pieces of equipment were put into place, um, and especially there's been some um, kinds of testing machines developed by some of the commercial manufacturers, as soon as those were finally Uh, developed and then delivered to various hospitals and doctor's offices, which was great. Then, unfortunately, we bumped into shortages in terms of reagents or even things as uh, seemingly trivial as swabs that sometimes limit the capacity of a a state or a county to to perform the tests that they need to to perform. So it really is this um, set of 
all the things that go into testing is not just one thing. Um, and so it's both the chemicals that are sometimes used in the processes to do the testing. Sometimes it's the swabs themselves. Sometimes it's the PPE for the nurses and doctors and public health care providers to be able to go out and safely perform the tests. And basically, if we have a shortage in any of those things, that limits our overall ability to do public health properly and keep populations safe. Do we expect the equation to change on any of those problems anytime soon? Or is this just going to be a slow grinding process where we ramp it up little by little? Uh, I think it's a mixture of the two. So, um, <laughs> for example, I can talk about in my county, um, we had almost we actually had no local testing capacity for a while. And then a few weeks ago, um, uh, a few of the public health care providers in the county were able to purchase and get their hands on some of the new commercial tests, uh, testing equipment. So that was a huge help. And so our capacity has increased substantially. And then, uh, unfortunately, we started to run into a few shortages in terms of swabs and other um, reagents for some of the machines. So that kind of set us back a little bit. Um, we're taking a bit of a step forward now in that um, some faculty at the university where I'm a professor um, have developed our own testing capacity, which we're using to contribute to the county's public health efforts. And that's also happening in San Francisco and some other places. Um, some of your readers are probably aware that the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation has been helping fund a group um, at UCSF to do some testing capacity, to do some testing. Um, and so efforts like that will keep helping us get there. In addition to that, um, I hope, although I can't claim to actually have deep information on this, I hope that there's substantial efforts happening um, at each one of the levels uh, to provide the, the things that are needed for testing. So I hope that there's some ramping up happening of swabs. I hope there's also some ramping up happening with the individual chemicals that go into the testing for each of the machines that are being used right now. And so it really is a matter of all these different parts having to happen. Um, and because there are so many things involved, there's obviously individual companies that make swabs. There's different companies that make the different chemicals that get used in the tests. Um, the machines themselves are being made by companies. And we really need to have all those things in place for this to work out well. Are you hopeful? I am hopeful, and I certainly think we'll continue to see progress, and I think the most frustrating part is that it just seems like it never goes as fast as it should. Um, I think the thing that's been bothering me a little bit is that I feel like we all recognized the urgency to put public health in place to stop the illnesses and deaths, and I feel like the urgency to uh, set the things in place to enable us to reopen again have not always been uh, uh, happening as, as fast or with quite as much urgency. So for example, you know, there was a lot of talk about uh, the president getting some companies to make um, the ventilators for people that were in hospital beds, which I completely support, but I haven't seen as strong arming or as, as kind of urgent things being put into place to let's say make enough swabs, right? Or to make enough PPE for nurses and doctors. And so if we could really be getting the same companies that might've been, uh, you know, whatever companies could possibly use to help to create these things, um, I, I would support uh, moves like that that would really help us get on our feet faster. Yeah, yeah. Very, very, very last question. I know I said that the last question was going to be the last question, but this really will be the last question on the uh, the testing issue. One point of one hurdle that is being faced by many cities and counties isn't so much that there aren't enough tests, although there probably are not enough tests either. It's that not enough people are going out to get the tests. In San Jose in particular, they've discussed the fact that many in the uh, Latino community or in other communities that are not uh, English native speaking, those folks are not aware that the tests are available and free, and so they're not going out to get them. And the County of Santa Clara has now put out the guidance that anybody who is an essential worker who deals with the public on a regular basis, they should be getting tested at least once a month. I that that is a very recent order. I don't think that too many people are aware of that at this point. That's a, that's a pretty radical change that now you are expected to of your own accord, whether or not you have symptoms once a month, march out and make sure that you're getting tested. I actually got tested yesterday, came back negative. Nose hurts a lot, but uh, glad that uh, I was able to do that. How big of a challenge in your view, uh, Dr. Kilpatrick, is it going to be to get more people aware of the testing that's out there and having them take it upon themselves to get tested? I think that's a great question. I think that's actually one of the big challenges in front of us is that the most effective way we can actually get back on our feet is to have everyone with, with even the mildest of symptoms, if you have just a little bit of a cough, a little bit of a fever, to go in and get tested because that's the first sign of, inf of infection that you can detect and um, in terms of a person's own symptoms. And if we can go to the doctor or go to the testing facility and get tested immediately, then we can basically... Uh, reduce the amount of transmission that that person might cause. So that's really, really important. And I think the challenge is that for the past, I don't know, I guess three or four months since this epidemic began, we had so little testing capacity 
that the message has been uh, relatively strongly, unless you have severe illness, we simply don't have tests for you, we're sorry. And so one of the big goals I think that has to happen moving forwards is that public health agencies need to mount kind of a reverse campaign, which says, hey, we for those places that do have testing capacity, we now have testing capacity for you. Please come in and get tested um, if you have even the hint of symptoms that might be consistent with COVID-19. And in addition to that, um, if you're in one of these professions that we really want to monitor you because uh, you're at either high risk or uh, possibly high consequence because you're either older or have pre-existing conditions, then we also want to monitor um, you more frequently to make sure you can be safe. And I think that reversal in public health uh, messaging to really encourage people to come in and get tested is so uh, different than it's been for the past three or four months that it's going to take some really concerted efforts and a little bit of time, unfortunately, uh, before people will realize, oh, okay, yes, now I should start going in and getting tested, not waiting until I'm really, really sick and can't breathe. So I think that that reversal um, in in uh, public health messaging is going to be quite important moving forward. All righty. So now we really are going to change topics and discuss another one of the goals that you laid out for us earlier. That is stepping up our ability to do contact tracing. And the way things stands, the way that we do that right now is a very labor intensive process. It involves having real people making real phone calls and calling up those that have tested positive and interviewing them and asking them where they've been and what they've done. And then uh, following that, following down the line and finding out who the other folks have come into contact with. And then on top of that, as you uh, mentioned earlier, also looking for the people that turn out to be infected, uh, looking for places to isolate in some cases and, and making sure that the folks that are isolating have everything that they need to convalesce uh, safely and uh, healthily. So, uh, Professor Kilpatrick, at this point, uh, it sounds like Santa Clara County, for example, is looking to hire 1,000 contact tracers, either staff members or volunteers. How, how do we, and, and the state, it sounds like, I've, I've heard at different times, either 10,000 or 20,000. How are, how are these numbers being arrived at? How do we decide how many contact tracers we need? Or is it more just a matter of, we want as many as we can get? Sure. So, uh, so more is better. And the reason more is better is because each person can only really do so many phone calls and talk to so many people per day. And what it simply means is that you have, if you have uh, too few contact tracers, it will take you longer to call that set of contacts of the person that you've just found to be infected. And that means there's more time elapsing between uh, when they might have been infected and when you call them and get them to safely isolate. And during that delay, they can go on to infect other people. And so basically, for contact tracing to be effective, we really need to get to the contacts, and I should say to the case, of course, itself. But as soon as we talk to the case and can get the information on who their contacts might be, we need to really reach and, and talk to the cases as, excuse me, talk to the contacts um, as soon as possible. And so uh, when contact tracers are limited, it can sometimes take them, you know, two, three days to get a hold of some of the contacts of a case. And in that same time, those cases, of course, those contacts are going on to possibly infect other people. And so it really comes down to the efficiency of contact tracing um, uh, is basically scales directly with the number of contact tracers that are there. And if there are more contact tracers, you can find the cases and their contacts more quickly and therefore limit transmission. I should also say, which is a really important part of this story, um, is that we believe the uh, average time that people are infectious with this virus is not super long. So it's not on the order of you know a month or things like that. Um, it's probably only uh, probably between about seven to twelve or thirteen days. Most of the data I've seen is on the order of seven to ten days. And so that means that if it takes us two or three days to uh, to reach a contact of a case we may have missed half the infectious period. So that person may have gone on to infect half the people they're going to infect. So that can be a real hindrance in the overall uh, strategy. And so then again, a similar question to what I was asking earlier when it comes to testing. Are these targets that we've set, are, are they magic numbers? Have we crunched the math and decided this is, I, I guess, uh, well, I guess here it's a little bit simpler because we know how many cases, uh, any given contact tracer will be able to trace per day. And so we're just trying to decide how many cases we expect to get in the future and make sure that we can cover that number of cases. Is that kind of the goal here? So that's one way of thinking about it that's quite good, which is that a given number of contact tracers can basically effectively trace the contacts of a certain number of cases. And so the targets that have been set are sufficient for meeting a certain level of infection. If the numbers of infected people rises above that, 
then unless we had excess contact tracing capacity, we wouldn't be able to effectively trace all of the contacts of infected cases. So we're basically setting ourselves um, kind of a, a capacity that will enable us to tolerate a certain amount of infection and efficiently trace their contacts. But if infection gets beyond that level, we'll go back to a state where there simply aren't enough people able to make the calls that are needed to be made fast enough to stop people from uh, infecting people once they get infected. So this is going to be a little bit of a dicey question because it's going to sort of ask you to predict the future. Uh, so feel free to hedge as much as you want uh, on this one. But what is your sense of what we can expect in terms of how many new cases per day we should be seeing in California once these lockdown orders are lifted? Uh, the reason I ask is because that would seem to give us a sense of how many contact tracers we should get and uh, I ultimately, you know, for the sake of this conversation, inform our question of how secure should we be feeling with the number of contact tracers that we have right now? Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, let me take one step back and say that one of the big goals with the shelter in place order was to basically get the number of active infections that were occurring in any given community to be lower than it was when it was rising exponentially to, I should say, to stop the rise and then to really reduce it back down to a much lower number that might be able to be safely handled by the public health system, which means the testing, contact tracing, and isolation. And so the challenge with reopening is that I think most of us want to try to restore as much of society as safely possible to restore, but that's going to mean that we're going to be pushing the boundaries on uh, kind of the amount of transmission we can allow. Um, and with that, if we do get a rise in the number of cases, then we might be dancing around that boundary of where it's basically safe or not safe. And unfortunately, what's likely to occur in, in uh, several places, I think, uh, most of us that are working on this would, would uh, make this strong prediction that many places will be doing just fine and then there will be an event that will occur that will lead to a spike in cases, and that will be challenging to bring under control. So um, so I think that's what most of us are worried about and looking forward to, is that a number of counties will um, open up segments of their economy and things will be fine. And then uh, as long as we don't have one of these relatively large spreading events, they'll probably be able to keep things under control. Um, but some places, unfortunately, probably will have a spreading event because we've seen this happen time and time again. And those are going to be the really tough times to really um, uh, bring all everything we have from public health uh, to bear and uh, and obviously ask people also to do their own part to limit transmission. And so going forwards, one of the big challenges is can we keep things under wraps or are we going to require ourselves to take a step back or two at some point um, and actually shut some of the businesses uh, back down that have been reopened because we simply can't think keep things under control in any other way. So that's the this idea of basically taking a couple steps forward, but then possibly having to take a step back or two. Mm. Last uh, point in terms of the ways that county health officials are monitoring the situation and trying to make their decisions about when to reopen, because I think a lot of these are probably make a fair amount of intuitive sense to folks out there. Hospitalization, uh, hospitalization, hospital capacity is probably fairly intuitive to most folks. But one that we've been hearing a lot of recently in the Bay Area, especially in Santa Clara County, uh, I believe in San Mateo as well, health officers talking about they would prefer to open up in intervals of at least two weeks because they want to open up one set of businesses or one set of uh, economic activity, monitor how that goes, and then wait two weeks, two weeks because that is the incubation period for this virus. So you're not really going to get a clear picture of how people are being impacted until at least two weeks have gone by. Uh, well, the, the longest possible incubation period. Um, and, and, and so it's this wait and see approach that is thought to be very important here. What, what are your thoughts on the wisdom or unwisdom of going faster than those two weeks? Because that is what we're seeing at the state level at this point. Sure. So the reason for that, um, those kind of uh, taking a step at a time and actually not opening everything up all at once is twofold. One is, is that we don't really fully understand the consequences of each stage of reopening, right? So we've never had a shelter in place in California before where we've had to sequentially reopen businesses. And so we don't know, uh, let me see if I can return to a concept we talked about in a previous conversation, the number of cases per case, if that number is greater than one, then the number of cases, the number of infections will grow over time. We really don't want to see a growth in number of cases over time. We really like to keep that either flat or, de or declining. And we do know, of course, that if we go back to our completely normal lives, then there will simply be a substantial uh, growth in, in infections over time. And unfortunately, it happens quite fast. And so let me briefly say it again, that under our normal life circumstances, before we had a shelter in place, 
each case was giving rise to about between two and three cases per case about every five to seven days. And so just in a couple week period, you could get an enormous growth in cases from one case, especially if you had a large spreading event. Um, so even if the average is only about two and a half cases per case, if you get one of these large spreading events, um, then that very quickly can, can lead to a large amount of transmission. So the idea with the kind of stepwise opening is to try to see where are we in that number of cases per case. Are we having, if the cases are declining right now, let's say there's about you know 0.8 cases per case or something, we might want to open up more of the economy. We'd like to get to maybe 0.9 or 0.95 or something. But if we get that close, then if we open up something and we have a spreading event, then suddenly we might actually get more than one case per case and start to get an exponential runaway again. And as the number of infections rises and our contact tracing becomes less efficient, then it can really get out of control. So we're really trying to, um, I think, I haven't had a chance to talk to the governor myself, but I think I can imagine in a meeting saying, we'd like to open as much as possible in terms of the economy as is safe, but not more. And that means that we have to play this game where we try to figure out which of the things that we'd like to allow uh, we can safely allow without pushing us over that limit where we no longer can keep control of things and we get back into that state where we have exponential growth in cases, um, overwhelming of hospital capacity, and so on. And would the, would the same logic hold for the, the testing and the tracing and the PPE and all this, uh, just because we don't know exactly what transmission is going to look like when we reopen, uh, the numbers that we really need are also not entirely well understood at this point? I think that's fair to say as well. So with the um, testing, for example, we haven't had enough testing to really know what could we do if we had the target numbers of tests per population size. How effectively can we limit transmission if we can go out and test, let's say, all of the market farm workers? If we test all of the nurses and doctors, can we really limit transmission? And if so, then that will really help us a bunch and allow us to reopen a bunch more businesses. So that those uncertainties um, having to do with how effective some of these public health measures are and how effective... Uh, I should say the other way, how, unfortunately, what is the additional impact on increasing transmission of reopening some segment of businesses? Once we have that information, we can then be much more careful and know even much more about how much we can uh, open things up without leading to a spike in transmission. So I guess maybe one way to put it is the targets that we've set are decent estimates for what we think we need to prevent the levels of transmissions we expect to have. But until we've really made contact with the enemy in a real way, they are just estimates. And so a lot of this is, as you said, insurance and insurance dealing with a high degree of uncertainty. I think that's true. And I think that uh, that these targets are reasonable first steps in, in trying to make things safe. And as we move forward and reopen sets of businesses and have small increases in the number of cases, we'll see whether the system is robust. If it's probably a little bit less robust than we like, we'll probably add some contact tracing, maybe add some testing capacity. Or if it turns out that this is sufficient, then what we'll see is we'll get to reopen businesses, reopen restaurants, things like that. We'll see a few cases go up. We'll track them back down with our contact tracing and we'll keep things under control. And we'll be quite happy that we get to have more of the economy back open and we actually have the capacity we need. Whereas um, if we uh, don't have any targets at all, of course, we'll never know what those numbers are. So I think these targets give us a good place to start and we're going to start experimenting with reopening things and hopefully have a positive trajectory going forwards. All right. Well, hopefully that rundown gives our listeners a little bit more insight into the logic behind all of these different indicators that health authorities are using to make some of these decisions. I guess to round things out, just a couple more questions and maybe just to put it a little bit more bluntly, the the questions to round out, I think I really want to get at this question of what is the case for continuing the lockdown at this point, given all of the factors that we've just discussed so far? Because, you know, returning to a topic that we brought up earlier, people are getting very tired of this lockdown. Sonoma County Sheriff there feels that the end of the lockdown is not moving quickly enough. So given the progress that we're making on all of these different things and given the amount, uh, the importance of each one of these things, what is each additional week of lockdown buying us in terms of added safety at this point? Sure. So I think that's a totally fair question. I think it's especially easy for people in California to wonder about that question because, precisely because, we actually instituted a shelter-in-place order when the transmission in our state was relatively low. And as a result, we have not had nearly as much infection, illness, and death as some other places. 
And so we might wonder, you know, what was the big deal? Why can't we reopen things? And especially, why can't we reopen things faster? Um, and the real goal here is to basically not get to a place where we're getting overwhelmed and have to shut things back down again. And so I think um, for many of us, both mentally and even uh, in terms of economics um, and how businesses run, it would be really disastrous for businesses to basically be open for, say, two or three weeks again and then have to close back down again because things get out of control. So I think the goal from the um, from public health agencies as well as the government is to make it a as smooth as possible reopening and not a kind of stopping and starting and stopping and starting because I think that could be even more difficult and challenging both on the economy as well as people and their their mental lives and all kinds of things associated with that. So I think the goal here is to say if we can uh, keep a shelter in place order for a little bit longer or say keep a seg segment of businesses closed for a little bit longer, if the number of cases per case is still uh, less than one, which means cases are falling, then we can get down to a lower number of overall infections, which our public health agencies through testing and contact tracing can keep uh, in check at a lower level. That gives us more room to open more things in society. So that's the, really the way that I see it is that the lower we can get things through the shelter in place order, that gives us more room to uh, to reopen things and allow more of our um, things to occur in society that we all want to re-enjoy again um, and while still remaining relatively safe. And so that's the overall goal. And I think that's what, what uh, the shelter in place order buys us in terms of maybe keeping it in place for an extra week or two is really getting things in place to prevent large spikes in transmission again that might require another lockdown. And I think hopefully all of your listeners, as much as I feel, uh, having another full lockdown in place would be really, really difficult. So I'd, I'd like to try to avoid that as much as possible. And if that means we have to have one or two more weeks of uh, some businesses not reopening um, to not to have to have a whole other full lockdown again, let's say in a month's time or a few weeks' time, I think it'd probably be worth it. Mm. I mean, that all makes sense. And, and sorry to be going round and round on this. I just really want to make sure I'm making helping us make the strongest case for this that we possibly can. I mean, the, the, I, I can imagine somebody would listen to that answer and they would say, minimizing risk is all well and good, but where do you draw the line? I mean, there's always going to be some level of risk to reopening. So how have we arrived? And that, that's kind of what I've been trying to get at in, in each one of these different topics. How have we arrived at these specific figures for why this is an acceptable level of risk mitigation and anything below that is not an acceptable level of risk mitigation? I can imagine somebody in one of these more rural counties in California seeing the actual number of cases in their county being strikingly low, the number of deaths being strikingly low, and they would think, you know, our risk just doesn't appear to be to me that high. So anything that you could offer in terms of why it is really what that person is missing when they don't feel that the risk in their county is that high. And also in terms of why these specific targets that we've set for ourselves are really important benchmarks to hit before we should feel confident that things can open up safely and we've mitigated the risk to a level that we should feel good about. Sure. I think that's a fair uh, uh, question to ask. And I think the challenge is that uh, because of the way this disease works and because of the delays between infection and mild symptoms and then the further delays between mild symptoms and severe symptoms, we frequently get caught uh, where things have gotten out of control and we really can't stop them in time. So I think maybe the easiest case study to think about carefully is that um, New York City actually put together or put a shelter in place order relatively soon after we did in California and really started um, closing down many of the businesses not long after we did. We actually had not that different numbers of cases at the time, but because of this delay of, of how the, the disease works in terms of infection and then transmission occurring, and probably due to some differences um, between, let's say, California and New York State, um, there may have been some differences between the two, uh, but really, I think what really happened is just a couple weeks difference in terms of really putting some of these measures in place can lead to runaway transmission and really enormous impacts. And so uh, I'm not sure how many of your listeners have done the very simple math, but if you look at the number of deaths that have there, there have been from COVID-19 in New York City and the number of people that live in New York City, uh, one out of every 400 people in New York City that were alive two and a half months ago are now dead from COVID-19. So to me, that's a pretty astronomical number to think of literally every one out of every 400 people in New York City that were alive just two and a half months ago have died of COVID-19. So what we're really trying to avoid with all this public health efforts, which are admittedly having very bad impacts on the economy and many people's lives, is avoiding outcomes like that. And once we get anywhere near those kinds of things occurring, it's really hard to uh, to slow things down. And so the other thing that I think listeners could look at if they wanted to understand this process is to look at how fast 
the number of cases can rise and how long it seems to take for the number of cases to fall back down again. That curve is not really symmetric at all. So it rises very fast. And even though we put very severe restrictions in place, well, cases do decrease over time, which is great. They don't fall away extremely quickly. And so it just means that if we kind of take our foot off the brake and you know, hit, it, hit the gas again, we can get going really fast again, and that might be, make it really difficult to bring things under control. So I, I feel like that's the, um, the closest I can get to giving a good answer for trying to prevent something that we may never see, right? So I think the other big challenge in public health is that if you do a really good job, everyone will always think you, uh, you were, did too much. Whereas if you don't do enough, everyone thinks that you, know, you didn't know what you were doing. So you're stuck in this place where if public health agencies do their job carefully, then we will actually prevent and limit the number of uh, illnesses and deaths from this disease. And we'll look back and say, oh, we probably should have had the economy open for much, long, you know, much quicker than we did. When in fact, we may have done a very a fantastic job, but we can't really tell because we actually averted the disease and deaths. Mm. So would you say that you are convinced at this point that the, the level of risk of opening up right now is, is too high, but that we will be able to get it down to an acceptable level of risk within the coming months, just to kind of give a headline to this? Yeah, so I'm very optimistic that if we can get uh, testing capacity, contact tracing capacity, PPE for uh, the first responders, um, and get the trajectories of both cases and hospitalizations you know, in a good downward trajectory, with some spare capacity in terms of hospitals, I think we can get to a place where we can um, carefully learn how much business we can allow and how many contacts and how many activities, um, whether we can even have small groups of people from different households getting together again. That hasn't happened in so many months. I can't even really remember what that was like, but I'm actually relatively confident that if we can put these measures in place, we can really substantially open up major aspects of our economy and our lives um, and still keep things relatively safe. And if we can do that, I think that would be fantastic, especially because as I see it, this is not something that's going to end one month from now or three months from now. We're likely to be living with this challenge without really an effective vaccine. I would I expect myself that to be at least six months, if not 12 to 18 months from now. And so if we're going to be in it for the long haul, I would much rather try to get as much back of my life as I can. And I'm certainly uh, I'm optimistic and hopeful that we'll be able to do that, but it's going to require these public health measures to be in place. We're really going to need to be able to successfully test, contact trace, and safely quarantine and isolate um, people that are at risk or infected with this disease. All right. Well, we are going to close it out on that forward-looking perspective. And all of us are hopefully going to be doing our own parts to get to that point as quickly as we can, whether the listener might be somebody who's actually working on the front lines or just somebody at home and staying home to help keep the people on the front lines as safe as they can be right now. One last time, we have been speaking today to Dr. Marm Kilpatrick. He is an infectious disease researcher at UC Santa Cruz's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and also a very, very patient human being that is willing to put up with an awful lot of questions and uh, help us also wrap our head around this very difficult topic. So we thank you tremendously for your time today, Dr. Kilpatrick. Very much appreciate that. Happy to talk with you. Well, that music means it is just about time to round out the program. Thank you all for listening. Hope this conversation gave you some food for thought as we all try to make sense of these very confusing times that we're living through at the moment. This, once again, has been How To Bay Area. It's a little podcast that I put together whenever I get some extra time on my hands at KCBS. We actually, believe it or not, have some non-coronavirus-related topics in the works at the moment ready to go. Uh, we are waiting for a time where coronavirus is not, you know, on our minds quite as much to release it. But the goal is to bring you a lot more Bay Area content on this channel as soon as possible. So do keep an eye on the stream. We're going to bring as much of it to you as we can. Other than that, I guess that'll do it. I, once again, am Keith Menconi signing off. Be safe, be well. We'll see you again soon. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.